This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm James Carlton. Welcome to God Forbid. Now, the Bible arrived in the South Pacific in the hands of missionaries and colonizers, but the locals took it as their own, making today's South Pacific among the most Christian regions on earth. And on our God Forbid panel today, two guests with a love for Australia and their other island homes. The Reverend Dr. Sephirosa Carroll is a minister with the Uniting Church. She has a PhD in theology. She's a research fellow at Charles Sturt University and she works at Uniting World in theological research and church partnerships. Reverend Dr. Sephirosa Carroll, welcome to God Forbid. Thank you. You are Rotuman. Tell me about the island of Rotuma. Rotuma is a little island 300 miles northwest of Fiji. It's a small island, only 48 square miles. We are Polynesian ethnically. Uh, and uh, very distinct from Fijians who are Melanesians. But you're part of Fiji or a Fijian protectorate. Yes, and that was since the late 1800s. And are there other distinctions apart from ethnicity between Rotomans and Fijians? Well, things like language, traditions and customs are different, but being part of Fiji kind of means we're a bit of both. We integrate our Rotomanus and our Fijianus. Part of the uh, history has been, well, the myth is that we're descended from Samoans and Tongans. And you're a minister in the Uniting Church. Is it unusual for a Fijian or Rotoman woman to be clergy? Yes, it is. And particularly at the time when I was candidating, that was actually a, a new thing because women don't necessarily hold leadership within Pacific Island communities. That is slowly changing, but it is still a continuing challenge. Also with us is Steve Maelopa. Born in Samoa, he's lived in Australia since he was a baby, and he's a member of the Baha'i Faith, working as an education coordinator with Baha'i kids and young adults all around Sydney. Steve Maelopa, welcome to God Forbid. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So your granddad was Christian. He was friends with the king of Samoa. But they converted both of them, the king and your granddad, to the Baha'i faith. Yes, Baha'is from Australia and America came and shared the Baha'i faith and its teachings. And my grandmother was actually the first one to recognize that these teachings were divine. The teachings um, resonated with her ideals, and especially even as a Christian. Because it actually incorporates in many ways Christian teachings along with the other revealers of religion, Krishna, Buddha, Zoroaster, Mm. Muhammad, Moses. It's a very interesting story. Um, This began in Iran in the 1800s, and Baha'u'llah, who we follow, and who was the founder of the Baha'i faith, declared his mission in 1863. And so it reached to Europe, to the Americas, and two friends from Los Angeles made their way to Sydney, Australia, and established the faith here. And so this particular lady, who who was a very young lady at the time, Lillian Alai, made her way to Samoa and established the faith there. And how big a deal was it for the king of Samoa in such a devoutly Christian country to change religion? Were his people angry? I think there were mixed emotions. The the way that the king uh, embraced the faith was one that didn't insult the culture of our community. Did he kind of hold the two faiths as one? Yes. He didn't stop being culturally Christian? Yes. I think he really accepted the fact that, you know, that Christianity was the main religion of of Samoa. And accepting the Baha'i faith as his own he didn't see a difference. And I think that's the same with the Baha'is everywhere around the world, is that we see that all religions are all one and they all come from the same source. And if you compare the writings of all the religions, you see that there's a commonality, and which is how do we safeguard the unity and the interests of humanity? On our end, it's God forbid. Up next, how Pacific theology evolved from its colonial beginnings, so-called coconut theology. Consider the coconut, consider its trees, each part a 
of the coconut. That's all we need. We make our nets from fibers. The water is sweet inside. We use the leaves to build fires. Cook up the meat inside. It's out of the coconuts, the trunks and the leaves. The island gives us what we need. Consider the coconut, the song Where You Are from the hit Disney movie Moana, about a strong-willed daughter of a Polynesian chief who's chosen by the ocean itself to reunite a mystical relic with a goddess. Now, of course, the coconut is an important cultural symbol across the Pacific, and coconut theology refers to the unique experience of Pacific Christianity. Seth, what is the coconut theology metaphor? Well, the coconut theology is attributed to the late Reverend Dr. Amniaki Haver as a way of saying that we need to contextualise the Christian faith in the Pacific soil to give theology a Pacific face. The coconut was chosen because it is everywhere in the Pacific. And not only that, it plays a central place in Pacific life, everyday life, from you could use every part of the coconut tree in daily life. So you could not only eat the fruit, you could use the palm fronds to make baskets, you could use the stem of the tree for building, and the coconut itself, the flesh, using that as a parallel to the life of Jesus by saying the coconut begins birth from on high, then at the right time, the Kairos time, the coconut falls. You know, the coconut never falls if it's not ready, but the coconut falls at the right time and, you know, rolls to the lowest part of the earth. Uh, And then there was also the death and resurrection. So, you know, the coconut dies and from death there's resurrection, there's new life, a new shoot grows out of the coconut. And you also then can use the coconut through the Eucharist in communion. So rather than saying Jesus is the bread of life, to contextualise it by using the coconut is to say that Jesus is the coconut of life. And that was to enable people to make connections into the Christian story, you know, into the life of Jesus through the gospel rather than stories that have come down through the Christian mission and colonisation, so that in that way, the gospel is earthed in Pacific soil. But even before that, and it's a very powerful metaphor, Christianity was enmeshed in Pacific culture. How is that possible, given it was brought by British, German and French imperialists? Wouldn't it be the first thing to have been rejected once the Pacific Islanders reached their independence, legally or emotionally? Well, well, you would think so. Uh, But I think that it's the whole process, not only of Christian mission, but also of colonisation. And that Christian mission came with a particular culture. And with that, I mean, woven into that, you know, are things like education, changing people's traditional epistemologies. It was it was a very powerful process. And one of the ways that Christianity was successful was because the Pacific Islanders work on a chiefly system. If you converted the chief, you converted a whole community, you converted the whole village. So in doing that, you not only converted the chief to the gospel as such, it was really a conversion to really colonisation, to put it crudely. So we would say in the Pacific, it was not about Christian missions, it was about a civilising mission, a sense that many Pacific Islanders would say that their conversion was to a particular culture, a way of thinking and a way of life, rather than to the gospel. So, you know, in order to feel that you were Christian, you were actually, you know, the native had to kind of be civilised. And that wove its way through things like education. Uh, We could argue that that was also positive, but in the negative sense, it meant that the Western epistemologies or ways of thinking replaced traditional ways of thinking. And in that sense, it became very powerful because a new culture was taking root. Others would argue that, you know, Christian mission equivalent to the power of the gun. You know, we had traders who came in who had powerful guns. And if you think about the worldview of islanders at the time, you know, whoever had the most power actually was the most powerful god. So all these 
understandings came into play in the islanders' psyche. And so eventually, and unfortunately, a Christian understanding from a particular culture replaced traditional understanding and ways of life. Steve, tell me about Pacific Baha'i faith communities. Are they uniquely Pacific or is a Baha'i in Samoa the same as a Baha'i in Tehran, Iran or in Israel or in Los Angeles? I grew up here in Sydney and here the Baha'is are predominantly Persian or, or Australian. When I was growing up, I, I didn't grow up in a very predominantly Pacific Islander community. Whereas at school, I, I would grow up with the Pacific Islander population. In Samoa itself, it's quite a strong uh, community. Many people adhere to the Baha'i faith and also in New Zealand, uh, where there are many uh, Pacific Islanders who are also Baha'is. But here in Sydney, it's you know there's not really much of a strong identity here. And it was quite hard for me growing up as a Baha'i because also I had this stereotypical idea of, of being a Pacific Islander, especially the Samoans. It's basically a, a warrior race. You know, before Christianity, you know, they lived a, what we call Tor Samoa. And, you know, many of the other Pacific Islanders, you know, there were these notions. And I think that trait is also passed along throughout the generations of today. And how did you fit into that? You strike me as a gentle giant. Yeah, um, it was quite hard because, and, it, you know, it's not uh, only for Baha'is, but, you know, there are some young Islander Christian boys out there who identify as, like, being loving and kind because, you know, the way to, to love your children is is that you give them a hiding. And I think this is the tough love that stems from the Islander culture is, is that, you know, in order to be a warrior or to be tough, you need to be exposed to physical pain. And being a Baha'i, I actually had to live an opposite life to that. Even though I was probably bigger than most of the Pacific Islander boys growing up, it was a mentality that, you know, you had to be tough and fight. And, you know, growing up in a Baha'i family, I was taught to, to love and to be kind and to be generous. And that's a sign of weakness uh, amongst some of the guys that I used to grow up with. On our end. It's God forbid, we're with Steve Maelopa, a Samoan Australian who works as an education coordinator with the Baha'i community. Also, Reverend Dr. Seferosa Carroll, a Uniting Church Minister, also working in theological research and church partnerships with Uniting World. Which nation has the highest proportion of Mormons, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? America, where Mormonism began, is just 2% Mormon. Tonga is nearly 20% Mormon, and the faith is present across the Pacific. Mormons arrived in 1843 and set up their first foreign language mission in the world in French Polynesia. The first Mormon temple outside continental North America was in Hawaii, and the first nation to be entirely covered by Mormon diocese, or stakes as they're known, was Samoa. Footy star Will Hopoate is a Mormon Tongan Australian, and a year into his professional NRL career, he turned down a contract reportedly in the millions of dollars to spend two years as a Mormon missionary. RN's Marion Shahab asked him why he did it. When uh, young men of Latter-day Saint faith turn 18 or older, they have the opportunity or option to go to some part of the world selected by our leaders in the church to invite people to learn about Jesus Christ and what it is that we believe in. And so for two years, I was away simply sharing the message of Jesus Christ and, and His restored gospel and, and our faith. And um, I was up in uh, Brisbane, Australia. Yeah, it entails a lot of uh, hard work. It was very challenging, but an experience I'll never forget and uh, never trade anything for. What were some of the challenges that you encountered? As a missionary, I learned to deal a lot with rejection. As missionaries, we would go door knocking you know, nearly every day, not to, to force anything on anyone, simply to invite people to learn of, of Jesus Christ. And, you know, religion wasn't everyone's interest. And a lot of people had other beliefs, which we, you know, as missionaries totally respected. And so, yeah, just, just facing a lot of rejection throughout the day. And uh, there was, you know, nice rejections and, and not so nice rejections. And so, uh, yeah, learning to deal with that and just to, the vigorous schedule of a missionary, it's, uh, you know, we start 
we wake up every morning at 6.30 and we study from 8 to 10 personally and as a companionship. And then from you know 10 a.m. To, to 9 p.m., we're out teaching, serving, door knocking, uh, speaking with everyone. And so, uh, yeah, it's a lot of hard work, but very rewarding at the same time. Were you worried about the impact it would have on your career? Um, I mean, yeah, I'd be lying if I didn't think of, of the impacts that it would have on my career. Will I still be able to play at this elite level when I get back? But at the end of the day, this is something that I always wanted to do. And it was just a, a hard decision that, that I made. And I'm so grateful that I made it. And I'm grateful to the Lord that he's allowed me to come back and continue to play at this level. And you're now playing with the Canterbury Bankstown Bulldogs. You had said previously that you didn't want to play on Sundays out of respect for your faith, but you've changed your decision. Why was that? Uh, yeah, well, firstly, when I signed with, with Canterbury, I was very grateful for their decision in allowing me to not play on Sundays. And and to be honest, if, if that was the case, and then I still wouldn't be playing on Sundays this season and for the rest of my career. But I understand that you know, sport is a business at the same time and out of respect and duty to, to my employers. I mean, they pay me so I can you know, provide for my family. You know, I've got to follow suit and that, that's something that they, they wanted me to do. You went to Tonga for the first time last year for the League World Cup. How was that experience for you? It was so much fun. It was, it was a lot of passion. There was a lot of love and meaning behind the door. And it was actually my first time uh, returning to the motherland, Tonga. I was born and raised here in Australia. And so to, to go back to where, you know, both my parents were born and where my grandparents were born and raised and to see, you know, their humble beginnings humbled me. And I know members of the church are encouraged to research their genealogy. Why is genealogy important to church members? It's important to, to understand, you know, and know where we came from and, and those that walked the path before us and have paved the way for us to, to be where we are today. When I, when I hear stories of my grandparents and parents and the sacrifices that they made, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for it and something that I don't take lightly and, you know, I wouldn't be in the position that I'm in right now if, if it wasn't for them. And so, yeah, just to really help us understand, you know, where we came from and, and what we can do to build on the legacy that they started. Will Hopoate from the Canterbury-Bankstown Bulldogs speaking with Mariam Shahab on The Spirit of Things. So, Seth Carroll, what do you think of his decision to give up two years of his multi-million dollar professional footy career to be a missionary? Well, it's a very committed direction to take um, and to take it on behalf of faith because it's it's not the done thing these days. That's right. Um, you know, it's, People were confused. Absolutely. He was even mocked. Uh, yeah. I remember the Fairfax columnist... Peter Fitzsimons tweeted, a footballer not playing on Sundays is like you or me not working on Mondays or Tuesdays. Yeah. So that's a radical decision and it shows conviction and commitment, uh, which, which is a very rare thing these days because our world values say, well, it should all be for the self, you know, uh, and it should be about making money. And, and he's a guy who's made it big and then all of a sudden he's made a decision to do something because of his faith. And I, I think that's really great example. Now, Steve Maelopa, your Samoan family on your father's side is actually Mormon. Yeah, my dad uh, and his family, you know, were raised as Mormons. So you have in your family Baha'i, you, plus mainline Christians and LDS Mormons. Yes, Mormonism brings that sense of family to the table. And, and I think that's what my dad tried to live throughout his life. Is that why Mormonism is so extraordinarily successful in the Pacific compared to other parts of the world where it's this microscopically small religion? I mean, 20% of Tonga is Mormon. And I think that was island culture is, is family and, and the bonds that we create. And I think the islander families consider this as one of the primary things, in, especially within the village, you know, um, what Mormonism brings to the table is this this idea of closeness and, and love for one another as a family. But is there tension, though? I mean, take your family's village. If there are Methodist Christians, Mormons and Baha'i, what's the dinner table conversation like? Does it get tense? Yeah, I think that's one of the problems that minorities uh, face in, in villages. Um, you know, for example... In my dad's village, uh, they my parents actually live in, in Samoa now. There's a sense of restriction on Baha'is being able to celebrate, you know, some of the holy days. You know, there's a bit of persecution because the Baha'i faith is quite new. It's a recent religion. 
you could tell them it's no newer than Christianity and the Pacific. They both happened in the 19th in, century. Yes, I agree. That's that's very true. And I think it's being able to educate the people of the village, the people of Samoa, the people of the Pacific, so that people can accept the faith. You know, it's hard for me to speak on it, but I hear it from my parents where they're not allowed to teach, you know. Um, because of a fear they'll indoctrinate the Christian kids. Yes, there's a strong uh, sense of ownership of Christianity and Christianity is part of the culture. And so it's quite disrespectful to bring another faith into the life of the community. Seth Carroll, do you see this? To be Christian is to be Samoa and therefore to be not Christian is to be anti-Samoa or Tonga or wherever it may be. Yeah, but I think it's more complex than that. I think it also ties back into theological understanding. You know, the understanding that Christianity is the one and only true faith, you know, and Jesus is the only way, the truth and the life. You know, there is the understanding in the Pacific that Christianity is the one true religion. So every other religion is kind of treated with suspicion. And so there's also a fear as well that minority religions are actually taking the numbers from their churches because churches are concerned about their declining numbers in the Pacific. So the conversation, the interfaith conversation, is something that is still evolving in the Pacific, and that is to understand uh, religions in their own right and rather than seeing it as, well, there's only one way, perhaps the question should be about how can we work together for a common cause of, you know, for the good of the whole community or whatever the context is. So, yes, so it's a bit of culture, a bit of theology, and mixed into that is fear and suspicion. And it's tied also into identity, cultural identity. You're a Uniting Church minister. Did you ever harbour fear and suspicion of non-Christian faiths? Absolutely. When I grew up in Fiji, and again, this was many years ago, my understanding was that Christianity is the only true faith. And so, you know, I guess much to my disappointment, I didn't discover interfaith relationships until I came to Sydney uh, and my theology was challenged. Uh, so isn't, I, isn't that interesting? From Fiji, such a multi-faith yes. country. Yeah, multi-religious, multicultural. And my lament is that that would have been a great place to learn to interact with people of other faiths. But I had to come to Australia to learn all about those things. But again, as I say, it's changing in Fiji and there, there is a move on the ground to actually be more understanding and to actually develop relationships with people of other faiths. On our end, it's God forbid. We're with Steve Maelopa and Reverend Dr. Sephirosa Carroll next to the challenge that confronts people of all faiths in the Pacific, climate change. Whatever your views on global warming, there is no disputing that rising sea levels, erosion and coastal flooding are threatening the low-lying islands of the Pacific. Already at least five islands in the Solomons have been lost completely, and scientists warn that sometime this century, the 33 islands that make up the Republic of Kiribati will become uninhabitable. Foreign aid agencies are trying to help, but often in an entirely secular way. Climate adaptation scientist Lizzie McLeod from the Nature Conservancy says that's a mistake in a region where there's a church or temple on practically every main street. Faith communities have been important advocates for climate policies. They often contribute substantially to development. And in many of the communities, the community water tank is located at the church. They also are often the first responders following disaster. And they are often the center of community, which provides a moral authority and an impetus for faith-inspired action. So it's critical that we engage faith communities building on traditional knowledge in both climate mitigation and adaptation. Not only does it help to ensure that our efforts are targeted at those who need it most, but it also reminds us to hold on to hope. For many living on small, low-lying islands in the Pacific, faith and hope are all that they have left. That's Lizzie McLeod from the Nature Conservancy. Well, Pelanese Alofa from the Kiribati Climate Action Network agrees that Pacific churches must be engaged if climate adaptation is to be successful. But she says it's not just a practical necessity, but a spiritual one as well. In 2015, she represented her tiny island home in Geneva, 
where she called for climate change to be recognised by the UN as a human rights issue. And she told John Cleary that just two days before she headed to the UN in Switzerland, her home of Kiribati was hit by a devastating king tide. A king tide came and washed up onto the land, onto people's homes, onto our hospitals. Everything was floating. This is the first time that it came over the seawall this way. And it was almost like a mini tsunami. But this is not a tsunami. This was just a sea level rise. And this was just a normal king tide, yes, which you get a, a couple king of times tide. a year. Yes. But it's the first time for me to see that the water is actually higher than the land. And the story on climate change, how does that fit with your Christian understanding? When it first came to Kiribati, we say no. When we talk about climate change, no. Because of this Christian belief that... God will look after us. But you have to study the Bible to know that the flood is universal. The promise of Noah was universal. But the flood for climate change is not universal because the impacts of climate change is different in every country. So Kiribati might get the flood, right? Africa might get the drought. And it's particularly interesting when you go back, say, to a book like Genesis and the story of God's creation. We, we are supposed to be stewards for God's creation. But at the same time, it says, if you destroy the earth, you will be destroyed yourself. So we have to be stewards. Our responsibility, we want our rights. We talk about human rights, but we also have a responsibility. And that is to look after what God has given us. And it's a blessing that we live in a country like Kiribati. That's the blessing that God has given us. We have to look after it. It's our responsibility as stewards, as Christians, we must look after it. There are some in the church who are still sceptical of that, aren't there? There are some who say, no, God will just look after us and things will be okay. How do you deal with that? We do not confront them. We let them listen. We're very patient with them. But like two weeks ago, after that king tide, because it's, it's very visible, I, I don't think that many of them will ever deny the impacts of climate change. That's Penelisa Lofa from the Kiribati Climate Action Network speaking with John Cleary. Well, Reverend Dr. Sefirosa Carroll, do you see climate change as a spiritual crisis? Absolutely, and not only for the islands of the Pacific, but I think globally it is a spiritual problem because at the heart, at the root of what's causing climate change is greed. There's research that's shown that uh, there's more than enough information out there about what's happening with the climate and what's happening to the earth. And yet there's still no consensus and that debate is around science and coal in Australia. But doesn't adding religion to it just complicate the equation further? I don't think so, but it depends on how you add on what role religion plays in that equation. If it's a kind of faith that says, no, it's not happening, you know, or that this is all God cause and therefore human beings have no responsibility, well, we shouldn't have any responsibility, we have got nothing to do with it, then I think that that's where religion complicates the issue. Cardinal George Pell says carbon emissions are not substantially changing the climate. Yeah, but I guess you've got, you know, science that actually says that it is, you know, 98% of scientists are actually saying that it's, that climate change is human induced, not an act of God. But cardinals outrank scientists in the church. Oh, yes. Well, (laughs) see, and I think, yes, unfortunately, isn't it? The perception. That's where I think the impasse is, is when the science and the religion don't actually talk with each other or they don't inform each other or that there's not a conversation between the two. Steve Maelopa, the Baha'is have something very interesting to say here, don't they? Because they have a unique idea of the relationship between religion and science. Tell me about it. The Baha'i faith uh, and it's one of its fundamental principles is actually the that science and religion actually go hand in hand. Science actually emanates from from God himself. The idea of um, of science is not separate from religion, and so in this sense, um, from what Sefer was saying, it's very interesting that greed is is actually at the center of uh, of climate change, and I think that's true, because 
if it wasn't for greed, then a lot of these things uh, wouldn't wouldn't happen. And I think it's our misuse of of many of our uh, resources, primary resources, and you know I think there needs to be a, a consultation where where how can we actually benefit the everyone on on the planet, whether they're in a big city or even in a small country like Kiribati. In fact, Steve, the son of the Prophet Baha'u'llah in the Baha'i faith said that if religious beliefs are contrary to science, they are mere superstitions. And Baha'is look forward to the day when faith and reason are completely reconciled. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Uh, you know, some of the programs that I'm working with is actually uh, that incorporates religion and science. How can we treat technology in a way that it can help the the people of the earth. And Sif, what work are you doing with Uniting World, engaging Pacific communities regarding climate change? Well, my particular work with Uniting World is developing theological resources around disaster preparedness. So it's actually through a framework paper about why it is important to be prepared for a disaster. And it's also followed, well, accompanied with about five Bible studies that actually are aimed at helping communities have discussions about our role in being prepared in terms of a natural disaster, but also our role as good custodians or stewards. Is there a perception that a disaster is punishment for wrongdoing? Absolutely. In the Pacific, that's what it is. A cyclone or a a king tide wave, as we heard earlier, is punishment from God for, for for sin you know, whether it's known or unknown. And what's your response to that? My response to that is that it it isn't a cause. That's not punishment for sin. It is a consequence of what's happening globally. And part of that is how we, agreeing with Steve, how we as human beings have been irresponsible in our use and misuse and mismanagement of our God-given resources. On RN, it's God Forbid, we're with Reverend Dr. Seferosa Carroll, a Uniting Church Minister, and Steve Maelopa, who works as an education coordinator in the Baha'i Faith community. About a third of Tonga is Methodist Christian, including the Tongan royal family. But where did Tongan Methodists worship when they emigrate to Australia? We haven't had a Methodist church since it joined Congregationalist and most Presbyterian churches to form the Uniting Church in 1977. Well, some Tongans formed their own churches in Australia, maintaining the tradition of Tongan Methodism. But most joined the Uniting Church, so much so that the biggest meeting in the Uniting Church calendar is not the Triennial National Assembly, nor their long-running National Christian Youth Convention, but the Uniting Church's TNC, the Tongan National Conference. Over a thousand Tongan Australians attended last weekend in the Blue Mountains west of Sydney, and RN's Rowan Salmond was there to find two worship services, one traditional in the Tongan language, and a new second-gen English service for Tongans who grew up in Australia. The Tongan National Conference, or TNC, is the single largest gathering of Uniting Church members every year. Until now, it was a traditional expression of Tongan culture and worship. But this year, for the first time, the TNC also ran worship services for second-generation Tongans who grew up in Australia, and it couldn't be more different. Even though it's a stark difference, in many ways it's a natural progression. The Tongan National Conference has run a Bible study program for second-gen members for over 10 years, and most attendees are Australian-born. Joyce Tangi is one of the second-gen leaders. She speaks openly about having to navigate a dual cultural identity. So I'm from here, I'm from Sydney, uh, Parramatta area. And you were born in Sydney? Yes, born and bred in Sydney. I grew up kind of more like an Anglo side of things, which was speaking in English. Everything was in English, it's more easier in English. But um, now that I've uh, matured, for all the years that I've been coming to TNC, there's an urgency to learn more, to form a fellowship with 
other Tongans. So do you feel like you've become more Tongan the older you get? Yes, yes. I think the, the more older you get, you realise it's important to um, keep your culture alive, whether it be in the language, whether it be in the writing, whether it be in just uh, general life. The Uniting Church declared itself a multicultural church in 1985, and the Tongan National Conference was founded two years later. It was the first of 12 national conferences, which include the Samoan, Korean, South Sudanese and Middle Eastern Uniting Church communities. But it took a while for that cultural diversity to be reflected in church leadership. Reverend Jason Kira was moderator of the Victoria Tasmania Synod between 2006 and 2009, and he spent 17 years as chairperson of the Tongan National Conference before stepping down this year. There's sometimes cultural clash. Young people don't really know whether they are Aussie or Tongan. So in here we say, well, it's okay to be both or hyphenated, Tongan and Australian. It's okay. What are some of the ways that you minister to the second generation Tongan Australians? What are their needs? To me, their first need is is to belong. Uh, It's about identity. It seems to be working. The TNC has grown every year, and young Tongan Australians are becoming ministers in the Uniting Church. Here's Jason Kira again. Through the Tonganist Conference, we've allowed young generations to grow up in the faith, uh, through the period of discernment, and they have become ministers. So I've got a few young ministers in the United Church, in the Tongan National Conference, who grew up in the Tongan National Conference. I think from memory, but in the last 10 years, we probably have 10 already. Yeah, wow. So altogether, we have probably about, from last count, maybe about 50 Tongan ministers throughout Australia in the United Church. Does that mean the future of the Uniting Church is looking more and more Tongan? In some areas, yeah, certainly in Sydney. And because of that, the existing culture is threatened by another culture coming in. Always happens anyway. Uh, We try to bring the Tongan culture and do the best we can to make it a gift rather than a threat. It's an opportunity. As the Tongan National Conference continues to grow, second-gen leaders like Sione Hehepoto look forward to taking more responsibility for their community. You know, when there's events on, like, everybody's involved, the congregation's involved. And there's a saying in Tongan that we say is called lototaha. It's like, you know, being unified or unity. And, you know, if we're all lototaha, that means that we all want the same things or we all come together, like our hearts are all the same. So when it comes to the Telling National Conference, everybody wants to be a part of it. Everybody's, you know, lototaha, unity towards um, the conference. And it's a great um, opportunity for the young people to partake in how we worship these days, um, especially in the Tongan community, where it used to be just first generation, first generation, but now, the young people are taking lead in every aspect of the Tonga National Conference and we have the support and we have the space to move and yeah, it's pretty good. Sione Hehepoto speaking with Rowan Salmond among the more than 1,000 Christians at last weekend's Tongan National Conference. Well, Steve, you grew up in Australia. Your parents grew up in Samoa. Have you experienced a dual identity or even a clash between the two cultures? I think my identity as an Australian and, and, and as a Samoan background, I was actually born in Samoa, so... The identity of being a Samoan was quite strong uh, within you, myself. But you came to Australia when you were one. Mm. Yeah. So I think uh, the, my parents uh, had a, a big uh, play at this. And, you know, this duality also resonated within my faith as well as a Baha'i. And one of the main principles is the oneness of mankind and the unity of the whole world. So it, you being a minority Baha'i within a Christian context, you being a Samoan Australian within the broader Australian context. Yes, and I think, you know, bringing these two things together and then also the, 
you know, the overarching uh, idea of, of the oneness of mankind. But some people say this identity politics takes people apart, not brings them together. Well, I think uh, the, the culture that uh, in, in Samoa um, is beautiful. And I think that brings more richness to my identity as an Australian. Seth, do you agree? Uh, yes. I <laughs> Look, and I think as a woman, a, a slightly different perspective because, you know, my experience of being female in my culture was actually quite uh, limiting uh, in the sense that, you know, I was like there were certain things expected of me. There were certain things expected of women in the culture. Then, then it is expected of men. So I found that I needed to leave home, leave the culture to actually find my identity as a woman, and also as a woman in my particular culture. So does that make you less Rotuman than you are? Well, I wouldn't think so. Uh, I would think that it make me it would make me a different kind of retirement. And this is the thing. I think when we it, it is about negotiating identity within cultures. And if you're living in diaspora, it is really important to create those spaces where our young people can actually explore and kind of, you know, get a sense of who they are, straddling different cultures. And we heard from Tongan Australian Reverend Jason Kira that some Anglo-Uniting Church members and leaders can feel threatened by these massive numbers, be it Korean Uniting Church, Tongan Uniting Church. Yes. Should they feel threatened? Well, I would hope that we don't feel threatened, but I think that that's just part of the human condition is that when you're so used to being a dominant culture in a particular place and you see increasing numbers of another culture in your space, it is natural to feel threatened. But I guess within the Uniting Church, there is that continuing opportunity to negotiate identities, to negotiate different spaces and to negotiate a different way of being a cross-cultural, multicultural, diverse church. Because the Uniting Church has a national Korean conference, which is huge, a national South Sudanese conference. Yeah. Uh, cultures, you don't get yeah. much more different than no. those two. And you need, you need individual spaces for cultures to uh, to feel that they belong, to talk about issues that probably would not be understood, you know, by the dominant culture because it's particular and pertinent to a particular culture. But at the same time, my hope is that there's also those spaces where both, you know, the Anglo culture and different cultures can come together and create new identities and new ways of understanding church. It's not an easy space to be in. You know, the natural kind of inclination is to, to move into the default position, uh, you know, so therefore it's the dominant, whatever the dominant position is. But I think that, you know, the Uniting Church, we're in a unique place and position to actually continue uh, experimenting and exploring how to be a diverse church in all its entirety, including our structures. So, yes, we declared ourselves a multicultural church in 1985, but my argument is we still have a long way to go to be that cross-cultural, multicultural church that we declared ourselves to be. On RN God Forbid, Wits End is up next. Wits End. Yes, it's Wits End, the God Forbid quiz. And as always, we begin with the buzzers. Steve Maelopa, test your buzzer. This is my island in the sun. You sing well, Steve. That was Harry Belafonte, the Jamaican-American. <laughs> Reverend Sephirosa Carroll, test your buzzer. Yes, I am Moana from the animated Disney film Hit Moana for the strong-willed daughter of a Polynesian chief who's chosen to reunite a mythical relic with a goddess. Stephen Seth, before we get to the quiz, that film's actually been criticised for appropriating Polynesian culture and also praised for celebrating Polynesian culture. Which side do you take? Both. Because <laughs> I actually, I watched the movie and I kind of got confused halfway through it because I thought mm. this looks more Samoan than it is Hawaiian. Yeah. Um, so, you know, maybe it was all for effect. But. Maybe that's because the person who wrote the screenplay was Māori. <laughs> that's maybe that's true. Yeah, all right. And so the star, let's just mix it in. Yeah, and the star of the film, the actress who played the, voiced the lead role is Hawaiian Indigenous. Yeah. There you go. Oh, and the guy who co-wrote the film, when I say he's Maori, his mum's Jewish. 
Wow. <laughs> That's true. That's okay, so good. there you go. So <laughs> here's an example of mixing everything in. Yeah, I'm the only person who says that Disney film Moana appropriates Jewish culture. Now, <laughs> <laughs> let's move on to the quiz proper. Here we are. Question. In the movie Moana, Moana's sidekick is a feckless rooster that eats rocks. I'm curious about that chicken eating the rock. He seems to lack the basic intelligence required for pretty much everything. Should we maybe just cook him? Okay, the question is, what's the rooster's name? I am Moana. Hey, hey. We have a... Oh, was let, it hey, hey? Let's, let's, <laughs> let's go to the movie and find out. I'm sure there's more to hey, hey than meets the eye. <laughs> yes, you, you win. Sephirosa <laughs> <laughs> away with a start. In the Maori language, what does hey, hey mean? Oh, wow. No idea. <laughs> its literal meaning is noise, disturbance or storm, but oh. it also means chicken in modern oh, usage. Chicken. Now, Hey Hey is a suburb of Christchurch. You know how it got the name? Because when the diggers returned from World War I, ex-servicemen were given land in Hey Hey to farm chickens. chickens. Oh. <laughs> there you go. Learning Makes something. Sense. Next question on Wits End. Later this month, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, will visit the oldest high school of all the Pacific Island nations. Which country? This is my island in the sun. Tonga. Ah, Steve is correct. It's Tonga. What's the name of the school? Oh. It's something college. Queen Salote? No, named after the king. King, king George. George. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the, the Tongan king. Oh. King Tupou. Yes, that is correct. The Methodist boarding school, which was actually founded by an Australian, the Reverend Dr. James Egan Moulton in 1866. That's how old it is. Mm. Now, that Australian also founded Newington College in Sydney. Mm. Right. Next question. When Meghan and Prince Harry visit the college in Tonga, they'll commemorate their visit by dedicating A, a statue, B, a library, C, a gymnasium, or D, a rainforest. Statue. <laughs> I think maybe uh, a, a library. Both incorrect. They'll be dedicating two forest reserves oh, in the actual oh, wow. rainforest <laughs> that sits on the school grounds. Go Tonga. Some private Amazing. schools have it all, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> okay, next question. This is a very monarchist quiz. When the royal couple, Harry and Meghan, arrive in Wellington, New Zealand, They'll be welcomed with a ceremonial haka. It'll be performed by A, the All Blacks rugby team, B, the New Zealand Defence Force, C, Peter Jackson and the cast of Lord of the Rings, or D, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinta Ardern and her ministers. Oh, oh Defence Force. The All Blacks says Seth, the New Zealand Defence Force says Steve. Steve is correct oh, okay, in Steve. this case. <laughs> it'll be the New Zealand Defence Force doing the haka. I think, I think we're tired, right? We, the last one was like a half a point each. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. Harry and Meghan, my God, are there any non-royal <laughs> questions here? When Harry and Meghan arrive, I'm sure they will get a very warm visit, but it wouldn't be nearly as warm as Prince Philip would receive if he visited the tiny island of Tana in Vanuatu, why? It's hotter? <laughs> because of the coffee. Both incorrect. Uh. The reason is because a local tribe on this small island has a cargo cult religion oh. in which they believe Prince Philip is a god. Oh, wow. Really? The BBC wow. explains why. Legend has it that the spirit of this still active volcano was joined with a local woman and their offspring was a white man who travelled across the world to marry a queen. There's nowhere on earth that throws a better birthday party for Prince Philip. To them he is a god. Nowhere on earth, second only to uh, Australia where of course Tony Abbott knighted Prince Philip. Next question. Fred Smith is an Australian diplomat who served as a peace monitor on Bougainville. He's also a musician who writes songs in Melanesian pidgin, like this. The lyrics there were Papadeo. What does Papadeo mean? God. 
Correct. Papadeo. Wow. Or father. Yeah. yeah. Pigeon for God, yes. So what does Papadeo Kulim Wantan Pikpela Kundu mean? Wantan what? Uh, God calls with his big bass drum. Oh, cool. Oh. Next question. A Pacific Island nation is lobbying to become the first ever to sit on the United Nations Human Rights Council next year. Here is that nation's ambassador to the UN in Geneva, Nazat Shamim. There has been no country from the Pacific Small Island Developing States on the Council. We have important stories about the road to equality, the road to integrating human rights in relation to our development programs. These stories need to be told on the Council. What country does she represent? I'm going to guess Fiji. You are quite correct. Fiji mm -hmm. seeking that seat on the UN Human Rights Council. Next question. In Europe, the use of the name Macedonia is disputed. There's the country of Macedonia, and inside the neighbouring country of Greece, there's the region of Macedonia. Both sides claim the other's use of the word diminishes their own Macedonian identity. In the Pacific, a similar dispute was triggered in 1997. What was it? Two countries, same place name. No guesses? No, I'm stumped. The answer is, in 1997, the country that was then known as Western Samoa... <laughs> oh, you should know this. <laughs> OK, I'll give you a chance. <laughs> Samoa. <laughs> yeah, changed its name to Samoa. Yeah. And who was unhappy about that? The neighbouring... American, American Samoa? American Samoa. Exactly. Yeah. And American Samoans still call Samoa Western Samoa because oh, right. they, uh, yeah, they feel that their identity okay. as Samoans is diminished by having a country neighbouring them called Samoa. Samoa. Oh. Makes sense. Um, <laughs> next question. In the hit TV series Better Call Saul, the lawyer Saul Goodman is mocked by his brother Jimmy for obtaining his law degree from which fictitious Pacific University? No, no guesses? Well, here's Jimmy berating Saul with the answer. You're not a real lawyer. The University of American Samoa, for Christ's sake, an online course? What a joke. <laughs> now, that's not fair because there is no University of American Samoa and there's certainly no University of American Samoa Law School. There is a American Samoa Community College, but that's it. And with that, we have reached the end of God Forbid. Thank you so much for being a part of the show, Seth, Steve. I've had a ball. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. For it's been us. fun. Steve Maelopai is a Samoan Australian who is an education coordinator with the Baha'i Faith Community in Sydney. And the Reverend Dr. Sephirosa Carroll is a minister with the Uniting Church and she works at Uniting World in theological research and church partnerships. Don't forget you can subscribe to the God Forbid podcast on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at godforbid at abc.net.au. I'm James Carlton. Until next week, remember to be good, God Forbid. <laughs> <laughs>